from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning, sports fans. Good morning, statistics fans. And good morning, business fans. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where all three of those topics collide. We're joining you from beautiful Philadelphia here at the basement of the Wharton School. Welcome, everyone. This is Eric Brado. I'm here with my colleague Shane Jensen, who's looking at me like, well, we're on the first floor of the Wharton well, School, I, not exactly know. in the basement. But, of course, we're a sports talk radio show where, of course, you can get involved in the conversation. And there's a lot to talk about in the world of sports, a lot of events coming up. Um, if you want to join the conversation, you can join us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Of course, you can always email our producer Matt Johnson at businessradio at siriusxm dot com. And of course, uh, you can follow us on Twitter. I actually, as Shane knows, I tweet quite often about our show on at bizradio one eleven. So, Shane, how are you doing this morning? Excellent. How are you doing? I'm doing great, actually. You know, I was thinking that you know, a lot of people consider this a downtime in the world of sports, but actually. One of the big sporting events in the Bradlow household is happening this week, something I normally spend a massive Whoa. amount of time watching. This isn't—we're not in July, are we? No, it's not the hot dog eating contest. Okay, all right, no. all right. No, I would love if we were July. No, no, it's not the hot dog eating contest, but it is something else, which actually should ca- have caught all of our sports fans and analytics fans' eye this week. We have the Combine coming up this week. Mm -hmm. Now, the part that's come up about the Combine, there are actually two aspects I want to talk to. This is our open mic period for those people who don't know. But, of course, we always welcome your phone calls here on Wharton Moneyball. So please join in and talk to us about the Combine or anything else. There's two aspects of the Combine that are kind of interesting this week. The first one is Adidas has offered $1 million or an island to anybody that can break Chris Johnson's record of 424 in the 40. Now, of course, it's debatable whether Chris Johnson or Bo Jackson has the record, but regardless, if you can break Chris Johnson's record, just so all of our listeners know, obviously it's the 40-yard dash, which we'll get to in a second. The record's 4.24, officially. Okay. The next fastest is by a guy, Dre Archer, who you probably know, is 426, just to give you an idea of how big the gap is. But if you can break it, you get $1 million, or they're going to offer you a particular island. Apparently, you can buy islands and stuff for a $1 million or around there. That's the part that intrigues me the most about this, is that somehow, I mean, when I think about it, I I, I find it hard to imagine an island that's only a $1 million. Oh, no, no. Actually, really? so let me just say, by the like, way. Is it in, um, like the Aleutian the, Islands, like up in the north or something? No, or? no, not at all. As a matter of fact, just for those of you that don't know, um, I'm also a big HGTV fan. It's yeah. 838 here in Comcast here in Philadelphia. Um, there's a show called Island Life. You can go buy an island. And wow. a lot of times these islands, these aren't people with like $100 million budgets. You can buy a small island. I mean, it might be a quarter acre, half acre. You know, there are some islands where, that are smaller is, where, than Manhattan. Where, where are these islands located? Oh, they're like in the middle of the Pacific that you can't okay. get to. All right, all right, all right. Yeah, you can't right. get there. Okay. But either way, let's get back to sports, statistics, yeah. and business. We're here on Wharton Moneyball. And again, please, if you want to join the conversation, if you want to call about islands, you can, but I doubt you do. If you want to talk about the combine. But here's my question for you. There's two parts. So... It's been nine years since Chris Johnson ran that. I was about to ask. And, and 2008. And how close has somebody come since then? No one has broken. I think the fastest is 429. That's okay. been run That's since pretty then. close. It's close and not close in yeah, some sense. Yeah. And this is what I wanted to get to. So given all these running backs know this now, could they have been training, let's say, for a month or two? Now, you think they're going to train anyway, but... 
if you knew that you had a payoff for a million dollars or an island, could somebody get above, get below 424? That's number one. The second thing I was wondering is how fast exactly is 424? So you can go onto the internet and find anything. I looked at Usain Bolt's time. Now, it's hard because Usain Bolt runs the 100 meter. But, of course, they have his split times at every yeah, point in time. that's right. And I assume there's, he's run 50-meter competitions before as well. Rarely. Okay. Rarely. But All this right. is 40-yard. And as everybody knows, just so He's a mo- slow starter, too, right? He's a, that, see? Uh, uh, Shane's already going exactly where I was going. He may not even be the fastest man for the 40-yards. He's six yeah. foot five. He's a big man. Takes a lot to get the engine going. But the prediction is that Usain Bolt could run somewhere, possibly sub-four, but between four and 4.2. Wow. Yeah. Now, that's, you say, wow. So, what, first of all, can't they get some, can't some track athlete who wants to play football get himself invited to the combine and just run like a four-one-five or something and collect their island and get out of there? I mean, I, I suppose. I mean, I feel like they probably make an exception, you know, due to, I don't know what the fine print is on this particular, like, you know, contest, but I assume you have to have some kind of actual legitimate shot. For, I Like, you have to be legitimately at the combine. I don't know. Well, you remember. I mean, you remember years can, ago. Can people just walk onto the combine no, even? No. Okay, so. No. But you remember But you remember years ago when, like, Ronaldo Nehemiah, who was a track star, mm-hmm. actually yeah. went to the combine, and he actually played in the NFL. Yeah, no, so I mean, I, I would I, imagine if, I don't want to say Usain Bolt, but if somebody yeah. of his speed announced today that they wanted to run at the Combine, I'm pretty sure the NFL oh. would find a way to let yeah, Usain Bolt it, it, run at the Combine. I, 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 well, that's I, I think that's probably right. I mean, they would definitely love the sort of, you know, I, I mean, you know, the NFL itself would pay a million bucks just for like that. It would pay Adidas that million bucks just to have Usain Bolt there for the, for the publicity. But my question also to you is, how trainable, like, when we look at the distribution of records, like, for example, I think we're both a little surprised that this record is held for nine years. Let's just make up a round number. Let's say four to 500 running backs have tried to break this record. They've, t- yeah. they've tried to run as fast as they can. They haven't tried to break this record necessarily, but let's say they've tried to run as fast as they can. Are you surprised that if we took 500 draws from a distribution, and we understand we're statisticians, yeah. we understand there's error, that nobody has broken 424. Or, or another way to view it is his record at the time must have been so good yeah. because you would think somebody in nine years would have broken it. And to put that in sort of even more specific statistics terms, I would be interested in what his standard deviation, like how far out in the tails of you know running he would be. I mean, obviously, he we know he's the men over like all NFL football players that play participate in the combine but you know how many standard deviations was he above the kind of mean performance of running backs and how many standard deviations was he above like the next highest person that's what you need to answer that question right of like you know is it surprising that f- in the next 500 people you wouldn't have had somebody that exceeds him it's a good question so here's what i would say from watching the nfl combine i i'm making this number up but i don't think i'm far off i would say the mean time of the running backs at the combine, remember, yeah. are somewhere around four four, and I would say the standard deviation is probably somewhere around point oh five. And just for our stat fans out there, that means to run a sub four three, 
Might even be smaller. It's two standard deviations. It's, so that would be two and a half percent. I think that's well. Let's say there's twenty running backs a year. That would say once every other year, once every yeah. three years, somebody runs a sub four three. That's probably about right now. So yeah. you're saying he's a little more than three standard deviations out, which makes him more like a one in a thousand type of event. Right. Which means it would take it's, thirty years yeah, for, to get somebody right. of that. That's so right. I'm probably actually, by the way, this discussion that Shane and I are having about approximating mean and standard deviations is a good thing for listeners out there to understand because all I'm doing is I'm converting a mean, which I don't know, and a standard deviation I don't know, to probabilities. I know how many people are running. I'm thinking about how many every yeah. how many years it's taking to get that many people. That's a pretty good approximation to use. Yeah, and I, I mean, I don't think the contest really... Cha- the existence of the contest, I don't think, is going to change those probabilities much. Like, I mean, these, as you sort well, of that's said, my, that was my these guys are going to be running as fast. I mean, because they, they know there's a financial payout directly tied to how fast they run already. I mean, like, this extra million dollars is, is gravy compared to what they could get in the NFL if they run something like a 425 they know they're going to get signed they i mean if they run like if somebody runs like a 425 or a 43 they're You're suddenly signed. A, they're, they're they're the top 10 in, like at the draft i mean pretty much automatically right oh absolutely top 10 of running backs at the yes. draft and that's another topic i wanted to get you uh get you to talk about Shane again this is Eric Bradlow i'm here with Shane Jensen we're here on Morton Moneyball uh some combination of the four of us myself Shane Jensen Adi Weiner and Cade Massey are here every Wednesday morning live between 8 and 10 a.m. Eastern we're here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. And if you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Another thing, and then eventually we have to get to the injury that happened in the NBA last night. But one of the things that's interesting this year is a lot of people have said this is the most loaded running back class. It's another, just a segue off the combine, but related, in like the last 20 years. Now, of course, as you know, you've talked about this quite a bit. Running backs historically are not taken in the first round of the NFL draft. We know last year Ezekiel Elliott was taken. Yeah. We know. But, like, I think over the last five years, like, three running backs have been taken in the first round. Well, there's Leonard Fournette from LSU and Dalvin Cook from FSU, which they're saying are guaranteed stone-cold locks. But they're saying there's probably ten running backs that could be taken in the first three rounds. What's your thoughts about, you know, in some sense, like maybe explain to our listeners why, despite a running back could be great, why you might not take a running back in the first round of the draft? Well, I think uh, part of it is is sort of like, I mean, when we say stone-cold locks, I mean, running backs are high variance, right? I mean, when you get one that, you know, they're high variance in a couple different aspects. A, you know, I mean, they they have a pretty sh- short like longevity as as, as 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 even conditional on NFL athletes. They have a short short two career. and a half years. So I mean, you know, it, it, if you're looking, if you've got a first round pick and you're looking to really improve your team in kind of a long term sense, running back might be a short term need, but is not necessarily so, you know you, where you want to spend your capital, right? Especially if like you need a quarterback or something like that. Um, so one thing, I just want to say one thing. One thing that Shane's talking about, which we'll get to the other side of it in a second, is he's talking about even within player variability. Like, yeah. for example, suppose I tell you Leonard Fournette is great. Okay, we both agree yeah. Leonard Fournette is likely to be great. But he may have a one-year career, he may have a one-play career, yeah. or he may have a 10-year career. Right. We don't know. Then there's the other part, which is between player variability. And I think most or people between position variability. But even really. well, let's first so yeah. there's three forms. Let's first get to between player. Most people would say, how much greater is the best running back from the tenth running back versus the best yeah. quarterback versus the yeah. tenth best quarterback? That's right. And I, and I think certainly, I mean, I don't know exactly. 
we could, certainly should engage how predictable even this concept is. But cor- the, the thought is, at least, that there are every, you, you know, that it, it's important. I mean, obviously, the key thing to success in the NFL, if you had to mention one thing, is having an elite quarterback. Now, how do you get that elite quarterback? Well, I did, you, you get lucky is, is, is the short answer. But, like, if somebody like Andrew Luck or somebody like that, it, it comes along in the draft. Obviously, that he is predictably kind of better than, you know, the other nine best quarterbacks, you know, in, in his draft class. That's It's rare to kind of get that, right? Well, let me ask you a question. I mean, this, a lot of people are talking about this. You know, they've talked about redrafting last yeah. year's draft. As you know, we had two quarterbacks taken at the top of last year's draft. One, Jared Goff. I think the jury's still out. Yeah. I think no one's claiming he's an Andrew Luck can't-miss kind of guy. As a yeah. matter of fact, people aren't even saying he's a Jameis Winston can't-miss yeah. kind of guy. And, of course, we had the Eagles took Carson Wentz, traded a lot, trade up for Carson Wentz last year. So you, I even see the skeptical frown on your face. You're not saying those players may not be great, yeah. but they're no stone cold locks to no, be no all qu- pros for ten years. No, no quarterback is no stone cold lock either. But quarterback, at least, is. I mean, I think quarterbacks are at least viewed as less fungible. You know, I mean, like like running backs these days are kind of these. You know, you've got a guy for maybe two or three years, and then you plug and play the next guy, and your schemes don't really change much. And unless, I mean, there's very few, even less that. There's even fewer sort of transcendent running backs like Ezekiel Elliott, I guess, right. who count as one, or Adrian Peterson a few years ago. And look at, you know, how he fell off. That, you know, whereas there's even fewer kind of like those truly elite running backs than there is elite quarterbacks. And so, I mean, if you're really investing and you're investing in the first round of the draft, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, yeah, I could take a running back in the first. I could take one of the top five running backs in the first round. Or I could wait until the 10th or 15th best running back in the third round, and I probably am not going to get that much downgrade, especially with regards to my own offense. The way I always like to think about it is, I think you and I would agree, if a running back averages 4.2 yards a carry, they're doing pretty darn good. If a running back averages 3.8, they're like, eh, they're okay. All right, well, I don't know about you, but... I'm not going to the Super Bowl because my running back's averaging 0.4 more yards a carry. I'm saying you just look at the delta. Mm-hmm. 3.8, you're slightly, you're okay. 4.2, yeah. wow, great season. All right, so you add up, up over 100 carries, and you've gotten 40 more yards. So, yeah. I mean, it's not that transformative to the overall success and of I the team. And I think that is somewhat of a change in the NFL over time. I mean, we have definitely it has definitely become even more of a kind of pa- a passing league where people will sort of regard the run. For most teams, the run is regarded as something, well, you need to have success at the run to kind of keep defenses off your quarterback. But, you know, you can achieve that success with a, a multitude of different running backs and a multitude of different running styles. You can have somebody like LeGarrette Blount, or you can have somebody like Ezekiel Elliott, which are very, or, or LeVon Bell. These are all very different running backs, style-wise, and they're all very good, but... You know, you, you probably could get that same thing with the, you know, 10th best running back in the league. Well, you're joining us here on Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM 111. This is Eric Bradlow this morning, and I'm here with my co-host Shane Jensen. And if you want to join the conversation, if you want to talk to us about the NFL, the Combine, we're also about to move on to the NBA, please call us at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six, Or please email our producer, Matt Johnson, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Oh. Before we move off the NFL, you brought up 
different styles, of course. As I mentioned, Leonard Fournette is thought of more of a bruising back. Dalvin Cook yeah. from the Florida State is thought more of a shifty back. We also had some other news from the NFL. Uh, Antonio Brown signed the most expensive uh, extension in the history of the NFL, four years, $68 million. Um, man, it's good to be a excellent wide receiver, well, isn't right. it? Right. I mean, he is an excellent wide receiver. People talk about he might be the best wide receiver we've seen since Randy Moss, right? So, I mean... If 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 that if, if that is borne out through the extent you know through his deal, I mean they're actually going to get a great deal out of that. Well, so the other thing I wanted to talk to you about when he talks about Antonio Brown is because uh, obviously we're we talk about sports here on the show, but we talk about business, we talk about statistics. How can you measure the value of an Antonio Brown besides just his catches? Because people will say like he stretches the field yeah. because of his speed and his ability, he can't be single covered. So. How, as a statistician, we've talked about this all the time, football's the hardest sport because of the interaction effects between players. How could one even start to think about the football value of an Antonio Brown and what he does? Because he will, by definition, I'm not even talking about practice. I'm talking about he will make other players around him better. How can statisticians think about how to try to assess that? Well, I mean, within a particular season or a particular game, um, I mean, you can obviously look at, I mean, they do sort of tabulate the extent to which he draws double coverage, the extent to which other you know wide receivers or, or, or slot receivers are open when when he's on the f- field versus not. So that's obviously something you can do with any in and one game across games or across seasons. You can look at you know I mean you know the nice thing about the great thing we could that would help us study things like interactions is if the players kind of randomly you know were assigned to teams every year, right? They don't do that, but you know there have been. Other wide receivers that have gone to Pittsburgh and gone away from Pittsburgh, you could compare that. That's, I mean, there's a lot of confounding even in that comparison because, you know, you've got Big Ben back there throwing passes and wherever they're going or wherever they've come from, they won't have Big Ben throwing them passes And not just that, you think, of course, the Pittsburgh Steeler brass is saying who could we get in here that we could get for good value that would pair well with antonio brown they're not randomly picking players to play with him either they are not but at least there's some hope through player movement there were a couple other things quickly that happened in the nfl then i want to move on to the nba uh you may have seen jamal charles was released yeah um adrian peterson's option was not picked up and of course revis island is no more at least likely no more with the jets that's right Um, all three of them are roughly the same age they've roughly played a similar amount how could we start to think about, you know, age curves? We talk about this all the time. So I was thinking, would it be age? Would it be number of plays? Would it be number of hits? Would it be injuries? Like, how would you start? Like, if you were going to build a regression model or even a fancier model, random yeah. force, I don't care which method you use to predict someone's future success. What? How would you start to think about collecting variables that would allow you to say, you know, we all agree none of them's on the front half of their career. They're yep. all on the well back half. But how would you compare three 31 or 32-year-olds? How would you start to do that? Well— First, first and foremost, I mean, you, you, I mean, you, you would collect the kind of predictors that you're talking about: the number of seasons they played, the number of games they played, the number of plays they've had within the games, then the number of hits they've taken, the number, you know, the number of injuries they've had. And what you really would like to do is kind of essentially build a regression model where the outcome is falls off a cliff or or whatever or or you know is no longer competitive. Then you run that model, and you, you, you could create a prediction model for when players fall off a cliff or are no longer competitive. Um, 
And then all of a sudden you've got like weights that that regression model would give you some amount of at least indication of which of those predictor variables are important. You could even maybe take the weights from that regression model and come up with some kind of duress score or something for current athletes that sort of says, oh, these are athletes that we predict now will fall off a cliff. I, I, I would be very intrigued by the outcome of that model. I'd be very intrigued about how it varies by position because clearly it does vary by, by position. Absolutely. Um, and then you'd start looking at sort of like, you know, how can we sort of like, what, what are the exceptions out there? Of course, I'm thinking of one particular exception. He plays for the New England Patriots where, where they seem to kind of like not, not to be resistant to the usual falling off the cliff. Well, it's interesting that you point that out because, of course, people have said that, you know, if history is any judge, um, Tom Brady is ready to fall off the cliff. Of course. There's never been a successful quarterback, as you know. I have heard that for two to three years. Now, yes, though. exactly. We all have, right? Oh, so. well, he has fallen off the cliff, you know, by the way. Uh, of course. Either way. Yeah. So let's also make a slight transition now to the NBA. Uh, of course, we'll have time to talk about it in our last half hour. We have two guests here on Morton Moneyball today. I'm very excited. Uh, we're going to get to talk about racing. Uh, and our guests, we've had Pitt Rowe on many times before, is uh, pretty exciting. So that'll be uh, exciting. We'll also be talking about the NBA there a little bit. But we had a major injury, potentially, in the NBA last night. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Before Duran got injured, I was going to ask you... This, so let's assume for the moment Duran hadn't gotten injured. I was going to ask you your opinion and why we need advanced statistics. Are the Warriors better than last year? Now, let me just yeah. tell everyone, our listeners, a little data that don't follow the standings the way I do. So if we ignore last night's game, I want to ignore last night's game just for a second. The Warriors going into last night's game were 50 wins and 9 losses. That's pretty darn good. The previous season, they ended up 73-9. and nine. So they would have to go 23-0 and yeah. the rest of the season to match. So we, and, and by the way, they lost last night, so they're not matching last season's. They have lost Harrison Barnes, which was a pretty big player for them. Yeah. They lost Andrew Bogut, who was their center, but they added Durant. So if Durant hadn't gotten injured, is it your assessment? You think that they were a better team? Just to let you know, yeah. points per game average, about the same as last season. We see wins. See, these are the things. Simple metrics, plus, minus, same. Wins, losses, worse. Defensive efficiency, worse. So I'm just asking you, before Durant got injured, what, like, how could a statistician, how could someone that's into advanced metrics start to think, are they a better team? Or is the regular season just kind of somewhat meaningless in that, you know, they have three, they have four guys to go to now in the playoffs instead of three? That has to be better. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's, I mean, I, I, I guess it's kind of the boring answer, and I apologize for in advance, but I don't think the regular we don't season... Do, we don't do boring on Wharton Moneyball. I don't think the regular season matters in basketball. It really does not. I mean, I mean, obviously they have to make the playoffs, and yeah, I mean they're which they've already clinched, by well, the way. There's 25 and, and, games to go, and you know, ideally they'd have the number one seed because that 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 means something in terms of home court advantage and stuff like that a little bit. But like honestly, it's really I, I think it's I I think the last few uh, years of the playoffs, if it's taught us anything, is having like kind of depth, you know, to sort of resist like an an injury. Or just resist like kind of the exhaustion of your top athletes is way more important. So you know, I mean, and that that I mean, the Warriors faced that last year. The Cavaliers faced that the year before. I mean, you know, and 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 last year as well. I mean, these that's what it really kind of takes to you know to actually win in the NBA. So, I mean, I mean to to win with your. I mean, that's what the Cavaliers and Warriors need to win in the NBA. I mean, the other teams are are. are 
shot anyway. So in your mind, now that Durant, they're saying the announcement yeah. hasn't come out, but rumors are he may be out for months, which, you know, if we add months on now, that could mean he might not come back until later in the playoffs. Yep. Maybe he doesn't come back this season at all. We don't know. Does this shift the power at all? For um, example, does it shift? Does Do you start to think to yourself, hmm, San Antonio, maybe, you know, they're only three games back. Do you start to think to yourself, I don't know, maybe even a Houston in the West? Or do you start to think, you know, now maybe, I mean, the Cavaliers weren't certainly a big underdog in my mind to the Warriors anyway. Now that the Cavaliers are starting to add Deron Williams, they're adding Andrew Bogut. Yeah. So they're adding players, too. They added Kyle Korver. Are you starting to think now maybe the Warriors' win percentage has taken a dramatic hit with Durant out? I don't think dramatic, but yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I think certainly their odds of, of winning the whole thing, i.e. against the Cavaliers in the final, um, has, has taken, I think, a substantial hit, especially if Durant is going to be out through the finals. Um, as far as their, you know, kind of the predi- my prediction of their regular season winning percentage going forward, no. No change. Not, no I change. Mean, or very little change. I mean, you know, and, and and I mean, yes, it does somewhat increase the odds that they don't make it to the finals. You know, they are suddenly the Rockets and, and, and Spurs look even more competitive with them. But, I mean, you know, you're a betting man. What are the odds we're not having a Warriors-Cavaliers final? Really? Like, what's what? the probability that that doesn't happen? Well, here's what I would say. Um, I would say that the Warriors are still a heavy, heavy favorite. I, d- I don't see any possible... Well, look, I shouldn't say that. Um, one of the big three in Cleveland is injured, Kevin Love. He's out for maybe another six or eight weeks. Um, Which, I, you know, doesn't impact doesn't, the Matter of fact, might even help them. He might even be more rested by the Since time the, the playoffs thing, how come. How can anybody get excited about the regular season in basketball? It doesn't matter. Like, for example... Would you? I, I know you don't. You never mind going back to talking about the Patriots. But we talked about this during the regular season. You could make an argument: the best thing the NFL. I don't mean the chip on the shoulder argument. The best thing the NFL ever did to the New England Patriots was to allow Tom Brady to play four less meaningless games. He's less likely to get injured. He's more likely to be fresh at the end of the season. Matter of fact. Tom Brady would be thrilled if they suspend him for a select. If, he, if Brady got to select the four games, yeah. a select of four games every year. He's like, this is great. I could play just twelve games a year. I could have five weeks off with the bye week. Please do this to me every year. Well, I mean, they. I mean, they could all. I mean, if he really felt that way, you know, they could hold him out of four no. Games you a year. the visual looks bad. The you should get the NFL worse. to suspend him every yeah. year. Yeah. No, I mean, though, I. I I feel like you could twist the optics. Like, how amazing would it be if they don't even play Brady against the Jets and beat them twice in a season or something like that? I mean, that would just be kind of an extra level of amazingness. But anyway, um, no, I I mean, I don't think Brady was actually pleased about the suspension, though it certainly worked out okay. Um, But no, I mean, I I do think that um, being, you know, the regular season for in basketball appears to be there's a lot of interesting strategy involved because you clearly have to, if you're a top team, you have to play well enough to kind of get you know the number one or number two seed but beyond that you're really trying to rest your players for the playoffs and this is a weird thing I mean and and I mean so people were looking early I, I don't know if this is still borne out but LeBron James was still playing something like the most minutes of any he's player. still playing the most minutes in the NBA see I don't know why that's happening I really under don't understand why that's happening is or how 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 close is Cleveland to losing say that one number one slot in the we east at the moment they have a five-game lead in the lost column with even 25 games? games to play. How is he even st- why why is he playing so much? LeBron likes in- to play. Okay, sure. 
But I mean, he, he you don't. I mean, I mean, obviously he's going to play in every game, and I'm I'm okay with that. But I mean, don't play him so much. It makes no sense to me because we all know that these last twenty five games are nothing but resting for the playoffs. Yeah, so either way, what he would argue, here's the counter-statistical argument would be, he's trying to get everybody in their proper rotation, he's trying to get everybody to, you know, the team to Mm -hmm. play at its peak, and that... They do have a couple rounds in the playoffs to get that all, like, ironed out, though, right? I mean, it's not like they're going to lose to whoever the eighth seed is. Yeah, the eighth seed right now is, well... Uh, yeah, probably not. They're they're not going to lose to the eight seed in the in the East. They're not going. No, there's no chance they're well, going right. to lose. I mean, to they've the got they've got a couple series to iron out that whole rotation, like prime stuff. So I I just yeah, I don't get it. Well, it, it talks about one of the things that we talk about maybe just in our last few minutes before our break. You know, how do teams even think about? I mean, we have a team here in Philadelphia where. You could argue our top two players. We now already know Ben Simmons, who was now our that number one Noel's pick. Noel's gone. Nerlens Noel's gone. <laughs> He's not one of our top players. Uh, you almost caught, see. This is what yeah, happens I when you're doing. Got a, you there. This is what happens when you're doing a radio show. Of course, is that you almost got me there because I'm talking and I'm listening at the same time. No, Nerlens Noel was not one of our top players. I was referring to the other top player, Joel Embiid. Um, both of them. I mean, Embiid may now be out yeah. for the season. So. How do teams think about injuries? How do you build predictive models for injuries? And how do you kind of construct a roster where, as you said, maybe that should be the number one new thing you should think about. You just yeah. need enough good players to get the regular season in the right place. Yeah, and I do think, I mean, I mean, you, you could go either way with, with with what your statement you just said. You could sort of like, like let's say we do a whole bunch of predictive modeling. Um, and, and we focus on trying to get players that we think are particularly injury resistant. There might be some juice there. I don't think so. I, I, I think injuries are still pretty random, you know? Um, I mean, obviously, things like age and stuff like that do predict injury, but I think injuries are essentially pretty random. I think the key is just to build depth. And I mean, like, if you're somebody like the Golden State Warriors, apparently you can build superstar depth, right? Where 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 the next guy off the bench would be like, you know, your bench players are starters on most other teams, and that's, by the way, and that's one of the advantages of getting superstars is that all of a sudden, you know, the Andrew Bogats and the, they just announced, the Warriors announced because of Durant's injury, they've signed Matt Barnes. I mean, yeah. like, I hate to say it, the Sixers, not that they want him anyway because of their stage, but they're not just getting a veteran good player to say, oh, I want to play with you. These p- veterans who get cut or waived say, I want to play with the Warriors. I want to play with the yeah. Cavs. So they can get depth much easier than other no, teams it seems can. Like, it seems like if half of the league is just like a farm team for these couple big teams. It's really it's, – it's, uh, it's an odd time in basketball. Maybe, it's all, maybe one could argue it's always been like this in basketball just because of the dynamics of that you only need a few players to be uh, an amazing team. Well, this has been the first quarter or first half hour, if you'd like, here on Morton Moneyball. This has been Eric Brother, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. We still have three quarters to go. We have two wonderful guests coming up, so please join us after the break. Good 
Good morning and welcome back to Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Thanks to our sound engineer for today and our always associate producer, Dion Simpkins, for bringing us back with some, sounds like some racing hype here as we're getting together for our next segment here. And this is Eric Bradlow and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. And if you want to join the conversation here on Wharton Moneyball, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or you can email our producer, Matt Johnson, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So, Shane, I don't know if you know, but obviously we had a big race that just happened last week in the world of sports, the Daytona 500. Oh, yes. And Kurt Busch won that race. And so this is a good time to, it's always a good time to talk about analytics, and it's always a good time to talk about analytics and car racing. And so we're very fortunate to have a returning guest, Andrew Manis. Andrew is technical director at Pit Row. We've had Pit Row on. We've had one of his uh, co-founders, uh, Josh Brown, on many times. So, Andrew, this is Eric Bradlow and Shane Jackson. Jensen, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Hey, thanks for having me on. How are you guys doing? Oh, we're doing great this morning. How about you? Can't complain. Nice, nice and early, ready, ready to rock and roll. So a lot of us, you know, we talk a lot here on Wharton Moneyball about analytics and sports, and a lot of people might not necessarily associate analytics with car racing. So could you tell us a, a bit, I mean, I know you've been on before, Josh has been on before, but for our new listeners, for our returning listeners that may not heard the segment, could you tell us about Pit Row and kind of your business philosophy and your role of applying analytics to racing? Sure. So we so so Pit Row incorporates uh, all of the real time data in motorsports that's streaming through. So during a race, you have cars logging laps at certain speeds, certain times. You have cars changing positions, and what Pit Row does is take all of those data and information in real time uh, and run several calculations uh, off of those information per minute, uh, per lap, for every car. And we create projections, and we determine what the optimal strategy for every car is. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot of mathematics involved uh, in auto racing that uh, I'm not sure many people see on the surface. And, and as far as strategy goes, what we're really, I mean, uh, 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 probably the biggest component of that, of, of, of kind of strategy in game racing is, is um, to, like, when, when to do pit stop. Is exactly. that right? Yeah, yeah. So you So there are... There are choices that, that teams can make during a race as to uh, to to cut down on the the time spent uh, running the race because you know of course the ultimate goal is to um, score the most points or score more points than all of your uh, competitors get a better finish essentially and you can do that by pitting on a certain lap and and by um, and by cutting down on the time uh, on a stint because you know maybe. Maybe your tires, maybe your tire wear is really steep at a particular track, so you know that you don't want to spend too much time on older tires. So you might pit a little bit sooner than the rest of the field, for example. So Andrew, can you give us a sense, or give our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball a sense of? So you guys collect this real-time streaming data. Is it? Let me ask a question. What's the participation rate? In other words. Do, does the data automatically come from cars to pit row? Does the car, does the, you know, does Hendrick Sports or Joe Gibbs Racing, do they have to be a client of yours? Or, like, does the data automatically stream to you? How does that role work with different racing teams? Right. So so every car uh, in the race carries a transponder. And from those transponders, we can get that information regardless of whether they're a customer uh, of pit row or not. So um, we're able to... We're able to get 
the necessary information for every car in the field uh, from that uh, from that NASCAR timing and scoring feed. Well, given that feed, um, like I, I believe I might have this wrong. I only watched a little bit of the race, not all of the race. But cars routinely run out of gas near the end of races because, you know, I guess they're making some gamble or wait. How surprising is it to you, given, as you just mentioned, the real time data that you guys have at Pit Row, that I assume whether they hire you or some other firm, every firm, every car has to have this database of knowledge, real time streaming. Isn't it surprising to you that as many cars run out of gas as they do, or is there more variability than I'm thinking of? I think I think there is some variability uh, for for a few reasons. One is uh, NASCAR does not carry um, particular telemetry data um, during races, so you don't know as a team. You're you're not guessing, but you're you're making an educated guess on how much fuel you have remaining. So that's one issue. Uh, the second issue is uh, who's your driver. Um, some drivers are much better at saving fuel and being more efficient um, on the throttle and, and on the brakes um, than other drivers. So that's another reason why cars are running out of fuel or not running out of fuel. And uh, finally, it comes down to is is your crew, when you are filling up your car, are they getting as much fuel into the tank as possible? So uh, it, it is very variable, and they're always cutting it close because you want a lighter car. Lighter, lighter is faster, generally speaking. And, um, and so, yeah, they're, they're always cutting it close, and so it makes for some interesting ends to races. Hey, uh, this is Shane Jensen. I want to follow up on that, actually, because, you know, you know, one, one term we use in statistics often is sort of uh, percentage of variance explained. And I want to sort of pa- kind of get get your opinion on where the variation in co- kind of outcome comes from in car racing. And obviously there's very there's – very, you're sort of hinting at the fact that there's variation in driver ability. There's presumably uh-huh. variation actually in car – you know, how well built the cars are. And then there's variation in strategy. And then there's, of course, the randomness of, like, you know, you just guess wrong with your, with your guess or something like that. So what proportion, if you were to sort of distribute the, the amount of variability, like, like or, 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 or what kind of determines the outcome of a race, how much weight would you put on driver ability versus the car itself versus strategy? So among those three bins, those are that's actually something we've studied quite a bit in the past. It's about equal among those three, and then of course you have the luck, you know, unpredictability factor that's sitting there, which mm-hmm. is pretty large in NASCAR. But among the stuff that you can explain, it's about one third driver, one third equipment, and then one third strategy. Um, or the, the crew chief who's making those strategies. Right, calls. and so, yeah, and you also kind of mentioned that there's kind of crew chief, or like there's pit crew ability kind of in there, and you're putting that sort of into the strategy bucket when you do that? that, that that's right. I think I think pit crews matter quite a bit, and it, and it shows in particular situations with, you know, if everybody's coming down to make a final pit stop together, it's very apparent that a, a a good pit crew can save you a couple of seconds and get you an extra position or two. Uh, but I, I do think the role of the pit crew is relatively overstated. <laughs> I, I think there's a lot. I, I, I see these telecasts and they're talking about how important pit crews are, and they certainly are. But um, 
I, I, you know, I look at I look at a pit stop, and I think what's more important is how quickly the driver can get out of out of their pit box and into their pit box. I think it's more important than how fast the pit crew is. This is Eric Brado. I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen, here on Wharton Moneyball. We're talking to Andrew Manis, Technical Director at Pit Row. If you want to have any questions for Andrew about racing or other parts of analytics and real-time streaming data, please uh, join the conversation at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Andrew, I wanted to ask you, um, you had mentioned, actually, points, and actually, I understand there's been some rule changes that have changed, like there's different stages of the race where they assign points, not just at pit row, but in the field. Is the goal to, obviously everybody wants to win the race, but are teams uh, actively thinking about the points, uh, you know, the year-end standings, or, or is it kind of win or go home? How are teams thinking about that and building that into their strategy? So that's a good question because this is completely new and so I don't think teams know exactly what they're trying to do. I think it's a moving target. Um, but but ultimately, you're trying to optimize the number of points you get in a race. And I was trying to choose my words carefully on that earlier. It, it's uh, What we saw in the first race past weekend in Daytona is that you can finish 25th on the day and still take home maybe the fifth most points. And is and that so, because of the number, just for our listeners a lot of out intermediary there, points, yeah, is, I it, guess? is it both because of intermediary points and also because of number of laps leading the race? It's entirely because of intermediary points. NASCAR actually removed the bonus points for leading laps this season. Um, so yeah, there are two arbitrary, uh, sta- there are two uh, early stages in races now, about one quarter of the way through the race, NASCAR will, uh, assign points to teams based on how they finish, and they'll assign more points to teams based on how they finish about halfway through the race. So, there, and I believe the intention there is to create a little bit of extra excitement in uh, in races that last typically three to three and a half hours. Um, but yeah, it definitely changes how crew chiefs will approach these races because all of a sudden. You're not trying to optimize the finish in a race. You're trying to optimize the number of points that you take home. Can you give us an idea within the race? I, I know this is going to maybe sound like a strange question, but at, is there a point in the race where, in some sense, you can make an assessment, we're not likely to win this race unless a large number, like for whatever, let's go back to Shane's point about variability. We realize for whatever reason today we don't have the best car. For whatever reason today our driver isn't driving the best. Maybe even for today our crew chief, our crew is a little slower than their best at best speed. Is there a point at which you say we're going to start to optimize some other function than winning the race? Does that ever happen in the middle of a race? Not often. However, uh, with this new system, I think we're going to see it just about every week. I think mm. we're going to see a lot of cars understanding and recognizing that they don't have a very fast car and that their best shot to get a lot of points is to, you know, maybe take the points that nobody else is gunning for, like, you know, at the halfway point or at the first quarter waypoint. Um, so I think that. I think it's going to take some time for teams to feel this new system out, but I would expect to see a lot of those kind of, you know, mi- the, the, the middle class cars in, in the series, the cars that are kind of fast, but, but, but not really. I think we're going to see a lot of those teams 
try to uh, employ tactics to, to get those points that maybe the top teams aren't really thinking about. So, I mean, one way I sort of think about this is that they are kind of with with this sort of these rule changes, they seem to kind of be incentivizing uh, against these sort of high risk strategies, right? These sort of like, you know, these gambling strategies where you either run out of gas or you win. Right. So I, to a certain extent, maybe that does actually kind of reduce some of the excitement of the race if, if, if there's less people gambling and employing these high risk strategies. Um do you think do you do you think that that's going to be something that we sort of see like um, a reduction in these gambling sort of strategies? Uh, potentially, I, I think uh, I think there it, it's going to be interesting. There are two competing factors here. I think the one you mentioned, and then the second one is if you perform well in the first half of the racing, get those extra points after the first quarter and first half. Um, you might be in a position to gamble a little bit toward the end of the race because you've already gotten enough points. Like, like That's we a great saw this point. past weekend, uh, the the 24 of Chase Elliott, which was the class of the field, he ran out of fuel, um, but he still took home, I, I think, the third or fourth most points on the afternoon because he performed well in the first two stages. So I think... I think it's going to encourage some cars to uh, to be a little more uh, a little more aggressive toward the end, but it will also discourage other cars who maybe didn't perform well earlier in the race. So I have an in- uh, interesting thought here, and this might be another one of these crazy thoughts. But let's imagine you incentivize people a quarter way through the race and a halfway through the race, and then of course the end of the race. Um, if you if I was just looking at let's say a time series of the data throughout the race. Would I notice, and let's imagine you hadn't told me that there's this new scoring system a quarter way through, halfway through. Would I see, or my producer Matt Johnson hadn't told me, which he did before the show anyway, but let's imagine I didn't know that. Would I see these strange discontinuities at a quarter and a half? In other words, would I see people, like, there's more activity now at a quarter way, or people like really gun it on whatever lap that is that makes exactly a quarter, like, you know, doing well on a lap just before the quarter doesn't get me anything. I have to do be doing well at exactly at a quarter, at exactly at a half. Do you think there's so, there'll be something in the data that we'll be able to see that will say, aha, people are changing strategies because of the way the points are? Absolutely. I, and we already saw it this past weekend. I, I think if you're deeper in the field, and, and let's say you're approaching the end of the first quarter of the race, if you're deeper in the field, you are probably – going to be running with the intention of optimizing uh, where you run at the end of the first half of the race and if you're toward the front of the field toward the end of the first quarter of the race you're probably optimizing your positioning for the end of the first quarter so the way i see if i were looking at a time series of, of, of data i would expect kind of slower cars earlier in the race to make kind of decisions more toward optimizing, you know, their halfway and end-of-race results. And I would expect to see faster cars running toward the front of the field to be making decisions on the near term to optimize their points earlier in the race. So 
This is great. This from a statistical perspective. So again, we're talking to Andrew Manis, technical director at Pit Row. Andrew, uh, we're here on Wharton Moneyball, and of course, we're a sports business and statistics show. Andrew, I have to say, what you just said to me is fascinating because you know I'm not an economist, but if I was, you know, I studied economics a little bit. This is starting to sound like game theory. You know, it's saying that certain players in certain positions may have different strategies for the race and others. I mean, if you ignore the fact that it's your job and you obviously work in the field of analytics at racing, doesn't this sound kind of interesting to you, the way the strategy, the way they've done this is going to change kind of in-race strategy? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. We saw a little bit of it at Daytona. We saw cars taking pit stops at very bizarre moments of the race, which makes sense in hindsight. Yeah. Um, I think, I think, be, I think, uh, television needs to you know be very kind of they need to be on their toes and make sure they're covering this because i do think it's very fascinating and hopefully they can communicate that element um because to me strategy and racing is is really exciting it's really important and being able to track that uh, can only you know entice you know new people to start watching. Well, I'm not here just to sell pit row, but let me do a little selling for pit row here. But would you agree with the following statement? You know, if they don't change anything in racing, then, you know, what do I need data and analytics for? Racing's the same as it's been for the last 40 years. What do I need pit row for? But it would seem to me that this type of change would heighten the role of data and analytics, because now these kind of approximate rule of thumb aren't going to work as well. Have you guys at Pit Row, just from a firm perspective, strategy perspective, I don't know, sales perspective, thought that we're even more valuable now? Yeah. Yeah, I think that I think you hit the nail on the head there. Um, you know, over the past month, we've been retuning and, and, and recalculating to optimize the number of points you take home from these races. And the, the the engine, the algorithm is just completely different than it was a year ago because of these new rules and that's really valuable. I don't I don't think there are a lot of teams that are able to uh at least at least from a data perspective, I don't think there are a lot of teams that are able to shift philosophies very quickly on this and, and so we we definitely have a leg up um on the competition I think because so, of these new rules. And this is this change engine. Let me let me sell pit roll indirectly with this next sort of question as well under these kind of rule changes are you seeing right now a do you think that there will be a potential to kind of essentially game the system you know i is are are we looking at this first are they going to have to iterate these are they going to have to iterate and change these rules several times over the say next decade because the you know it's going to turn out some particularly bizarre strategies are are are, are going to be you know, strangely optimal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think and that's one thing we've we've talked about as a company. There, a lot of stuff that made no sense in the past might be really smart now, and so everything's on the table. And I would expect NASCAR will probably have to make a few tweaks here and there as soon as later this year, depending on on what teams might find. So, Andrew, uh, you know, we've had you on before. We've had other people from Pit Row on before. Can you tell us, you know, what's the latest and greatest that's going on on analytics in motorsports? So, you know, we had you on, I think, last year, maybe Josh on the year before that. But 
What's changed? You even mentioned the models changed, but what's really been revolutionary? What's changed in the last year? And if we were going to have you on, which we will next year, what will you think will have changed by then? So I think over the past year, I think I, I think in NASCAR the big the, the big question has become on what lap do you pit on? If there's no cautions, if nobody's wrecking, so I think optimizing your pit lap, and I think teams are getting a little more creative about what lap to pit on. Um, so that's one thing that's changed over the past year, and that's one thing we've devoted a lot of uh, time and energy towards solving for every car. And then if I were to, you know, if I were to project what will change over the following year, it, it's going to be you know, teams scrambling very quickly to find out how to maximize not necessarily their finish in a race, but their number of points, because those two, those two statistics are no longer as as positively correlated as they used to be and and so teams exploring different ways to optimize points maybe they sacrifice a better finish in order to take home more points and so i think that's that's probably what we'll be talking about a year from now we only have about a minute or two left so andrew maybe just as a last question um are there any new advances if you had to guess where the big advances are going to come in analytics and motorsports is it going to come from better data better models or kind of better use of those models i think it's going to come from uh better models i i think uh you know I, nobody has any information on how teams will react to the to these new this new stage format and so whoever can just develop a model out there that runs and, and works reasonably well is going to have a leg up on the competition. Well, Andrew, I, first of all, I want to thank you for your time. Um, it must be a really, I mean, you know, these transformative times in industries don't happen that often, especially in a sport that's been around a long time like auto racing. And it must be a very, very exciting time to be at Pit Row right now. Not that it wasn't always, but now it must be a really exciting time. It is. It's an extremely relevant time, and, and we're looking forward to uh, seeing how the next year plays out. Well, Andrew, thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. So we've been talking to Andrew Manis, Technical Director at Pit Row. Um, it's obviously, Shane, a very exciting time to be in the race uh, game, and I actually thought it was very interesting that there's going to be these three stages now, and I actually thought your question, which was fascinating, was, you know, are is NASCAR going to potentially have to change the rules because, you know, car racing teams will start to be able to game this. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting going forward. So this has been the first hour here on Morton Moneyball. Uh, we've talked about a lot of sports. You know, this is the beauty of our show. We've talked about the NFL. We've talked about the NBA. We've talked about racing. And what's always fascinating to me was Andrew's answer was, you know, it's really, they've got great data right now. It's really going to be about coming up with a better model and trying to think about how teams are now going to maximize not necessarily their outcome in the race, but points. And man, oh man, it might have a bunch of drivers turn over in their grave. So please join us. Uh, this has been one hour. We have an hour left here on Morton Moneyball. Please join us right after the break. Listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. 
Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Our one hour down, one hour to go. We're here every Wednesday, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern Live, and replayed throughout the week. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning and friend, Shane Jensen, and some combination of us, Adi Weiner and Cade Massey, here every week. And if you want to join the conversation, it would be great to have you call in. Uh, you can call in at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Or you can email our producer Matt Johnson anytime. We take emails throughout the week uh, at businessradio at siriusxm dot com. So Shane, we've uh, spent some time talking about the NBA, but we're obviously very excited to have Jonathan Charks, who's a writer for the Ringer. He's a uh, Dallas guy. Uh, went to University of Texas. Writes about basketball all the time. Works. Excited to have him here on Morton Moneyball. So, Jonathan, welcome to the show. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with Shane Jensen. Hey, guys. How you doing? Doing great this morning. How are you? I'm all right. A little early for me, but I guess you guys are used to it. Yeah, we're used to the early morning, and we thank you for getting up early. You know, we could talk about all the articles you've written, and we want to get to those in just a second. But obviously, last night was a potentially pivotal moment in the NBA when, uh, you know, Kevin Durant, potentially, we don't know exactly the extent of the injury yet, but he could be out a month, two months, etc. Um, how do how are you thinking about, when you first heard about the injury, were you thinking, wow, this is a major shift of power in basketball? Or are you thinking, no, nah, they still got at least three or four other really great guys? How are you thinking about the injury? Oh, I mean, I think it's a pretty major shift if he's out for a significant amount of time, for sure. Just because, yeah, they'll still be great without Durant, but having Durant on that team made them so much better. I was always on the camp like the Warriors are probably going to win pretty easily the whole championship with their team healthy. If Durant's out for a lot of time, I feel like it's a lot more wide open. I mean, it's just for the simple fact that last year's team had Harrison Barnes and Andrew Bogut. Now they don't. So losing Durant means they're much, they have much less depth. Now, how about the theory? Now, I don't, you know, I know you. Uh, we're going to get to point guards in a second, but you do in your point guard article. You do mention, you know, at the end of the day, there is only one basketball. So, is there an argument? Can an argument be made that, in some sense, you know, yeah, Durant has had a phenomenal season statistically, but how much drop off? Like, if you know, Clay Thompson and Steph Curry have to take five or seven more shots each, and maybe Draymond Green doesn't give away as much offense as he used to, and you know. Is it really going to hurt them that much, do you think? Well, I think offensively they can't jack up Steph and Clay's usage rates, and they should be okay. It's just the rest of the team isn't as deep as they were last year. Like, they can go back to last year's team, but they don't have Bogut at the five. Their center spot is much bigger than they were last year. Now their power forward spot, there's no Harrison Barnes there. So when they go small, they go doll, and that's about it. So I'll have to play Matt Barnes, probably big minutes. It's just, I think... A lot of times with some stars go down, it's not so much the guys replacing the stars, it's the guys replacing the replacements. And I'll go and say just a lot thin, would be a lot thinner across the board because they're playing much more bigger roles for the top three players. Hey, this is uh, Shane Jensen. I'm just going to play devil's advocate for, for a second here. Um, when we talk about it moving the needle substantially as far as their odds of being NBA champions, we're really, I mean, for that to happen, he has to be out f- for essentially an extended period, like, you know, he has to be out for an extended period or or when he comes back not at 100% healthy, like in the third, second or third round of the playoffs. That's when it's actually going to matter, right? It's not going to matter at all up until that point. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the way the West is, there's a huge drop-off from 7 to 8. So as long as Golden State stays in the first seed, they'll be okay in the second round of the playoffs. But I think there's seven good teams in the West. 
They'll need Durant back near 100 percent for the second round of the playoffs. Okay, that's where so that's where you sort of think that they actually are going to be challenged to the extent that the absence or presence of Durant makes a substantive difference. This is the second round. Yeah. Yeah, it's just hard to say right now until we know how long he's out. We're just obviously mm-hmm. we're just speculating. Yeah, and I mean, you know, even if he is back by then, you know, you you could certainly argue he's not going to be back at a hundred percent by then. I mean, I mean, yeah, there's just no way. Now you look at Steph last year; he was never really the same after the injury in Game One of the playoffs. Yeah. They're just absolutely no right now. So we're talking to John Sharks, writer for The Ringer here on Wharton Moneyball. So, John, let me ask you another quick question. Um, I made an argument. Maybe this is a totally uh, incorrect argument. Uh, Shane, you know, Shane's still in love with the Super Bowl because he's a big Patriot fan here. And so I made an argument that maybe Tom Brady being out for four games was the best thing for him because, you know, he didn't get injured in those four games. He was more rested for the playoffs. Is there any argument that, you know what, all right, look, so now we know that the uh, Warriors aren't. Well, they're, we, they weren't winning seventy-three games like last year anyway. They were already fifty and nine going into last night's game. But maybe it makes them say, "Look, let's throttle it back. All we got to do is stay ahead of San Antonio. We won't even try to pretend like we're going to win seventy games." Durant's going to come back, maybe more rested. He won't have the wear and tear on his body. Is there any argument that this could be a good thing for them come the playoffs? I think the main thing would be, if you could know for sure, it would not have any lingering effects. Mm-hmm. Like if he was out for three or four weeks, and you're like, okay, when he comes back, he'll be 100%. Because that way, that increases the roles for guys like Patrick McCaw, Ian Clark. They get bigger roles. They get more confident with more minutes. When they come back, they're a deeper team. It's just, Durant is 28, so it's not a big deal about wear and tear. It's just, will this injury linger on? And that's what we don't know right now. Yeah, that's it's a great point, because I remember just Steph was never the same in last yeah. year's playoffs. And you're right, I'm making an assumption that Durant's going to come back and be 100% Durant, whether it's three weeks or four weeks. He may not be 100% Durant. Well, we don't know. We're all speculating on the degree of the injury. But he may not be Durant again until next season. We have no idea. It's just tough with knee injuries. Those are always the scariest injuries. I, you just never know with knees. Well, if you don't mind, let's now transition. We've been talking about the NBA, but let's continue on the NBA. Um, you actually wrote a recent article, which all of us read, found extremely fascinating about there's never been a better time to be a point guard. Could you tell our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball about the article, kind of what made you think about writing this article, and you know, kind of what you looked at to evaluate point guards? Well, I think it's just the idea, if, if you watch the NBA at all, you're seeing kind of the, the position becoming more and more important. And I would compare it to like being a quarterback in the NFL, just the rule changes in the game. It's, the floor is being spread a lot more in both, both sports, even if it's being stretched out. And so then it's about making the right decisions with the ball in your hands. So it like emphasizes the guy who makes the primary decision, whether it's a point guard or the quarterback. And we just, we, we're kicking it around for a while we wanted to do some kind of big point guard piece. And they were like, oh, it's just rank point guards. And I thought, well, that's so, like, reductive. It's like there's no really answer to that question because they're all so different. So I thought, let's just compare these point guards across seven or eight different categories and see if we can find any trends. Well, can you tell us, so can you tell our listeners what those categories are? Like, what were the major categories you determined, you used to evaluate point guards? Oh, sheesh. It was a couple of weeks ago now. I read somebody. I'm trying to remember. Um... I think for one, it was probably who played in the most space. So, like, who is in the most advantageous position offensively to attack the basket? I think that it was like who's the best shooter, who had the biggest impact on his teammates, who played the best defense, who are the most, who had the most efficient distribution of shots in terms of uh, 
rim shots and three-pointers versus mid-range jumpers, who is the best passer. I believe those are the main categories. It has been a little while since I Yeah, no, the, 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 couple, the two things that stuck out to me that you mentioned uh, from the article um, – was one is of course you know that the, their actual sort of shooting decision making which is you know again avoiding i mean this is you know as a casual fan of basketball i've been fascinated by the sort of evolution over the last decade away from you know to kind of you're either in close to the basket or you're at the three-point line um and and you want why to really would you up, take any other yeah why would you avoiding these mid-range jumpers so that was one thing that kind of and i guess that's sort of the maury ball kind of what what we're now calling the Mori Ball strategy. Um, So that's certainly something that stuck out to me. The other one was, again, a sort of decision, the percentage of times they pass, basically. Right. I I remember you talking a lot about the sort of percentage of possessions on which they're passing. And obviously that one's fascinating to me because that is driven not only by their own decision making and their own, you know, shooting versus passing ability, but also who their teammates are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a tough it's a tough balance. A lot of it too is their teammates and the role on their team and whether. But I I've I've come to the opinion over the last ten years, it's kind of more important for point guards to shoot than to pass. I think if anything, the shot sets up the pass. Whereas before, like maybe a generation ago, it was the pass that set up the shot. Like to make a pretty bad football analogy again, it's like back in the day, the run set up the pass. And you ran the ball to like play action pass mm-hmm. go deep. Yep. And now it's the pass up the run. You please throw out long pass to the sidelines, just defense out, then you run the ball up the middle. And I think like nowadays you want your point guard being very, very aggressive, and then when he draws a double team, then you pass the ball. I feel like that's been a big change over the last ten or so years. So who were the point guards that based on your evaluation that kinda came what was let me start with the first one. Maybe not who was the best necessarily yet. I want to get to that. But who surprised you the most based on the data you collected that they were, let's say, as highly ranked as they were or who was not as highly ranked based on, you know, because everyone's got their own belief on, well, of course, it's got to be Russell Westbrook. No one's averaged a triple-double since Oscar Robertson like 55 years ago. He just has his 30th triple-double last night. Like, who surprised you on the positive side? Who surprised you on the negative side? I think on the positive side, uh, it's probably Kyle Lowry in Toronto. I think, like, I, as I was looking at the numbers – you just look at the, the little amount of space he plays in, and like especially before those trades they made at the deadline, like the Raptors probably spaced the floor worse than the Thunder even, and the and he was still very effective because he was so good off the dribble and he was so good getting to the rim anyways. And what's really unfortunate with all those injury, but with him getting injured, I feel like he could have been in line for even better play in the second half of the season because now Toronto can play with more with five out shooters around him. And I was looking at Lowry as I'm going to make a huge push in the second half of the year with this new lineup in Toronto. So it really, it's really sad that he got hurt right when they got those new players around him. Hmm. Yeah, because um, that's an interesting that's an interesting name on the plus side. Because if you asked most even ardent NBA fans to name the f- top five point guards in the league, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't come up on anybody's list. So that's interesting of that he would kind of bubble to the top, or at least someone that surprised you as a positive residual from what the casual fan or even even the basic metrics might say. Yeah, I think I really like what Toronto did at the deadline, adding a Bach and PJ Tucker. And I think they're pretty well positioned to be the second-best team in the East now. I expect if they play Cleveland again get healthy, it'll be a much more competitive series than last year. Hmm. Well, and again, as we've pointed out, 
I'll, I'll just go back to your words, John. Um, we're assuming this the same Kevin Love's going to come back after the injury. We don't know that. And we're making maybe an assumption that neither LeBron or Kyrie gets injured, and we don't know that. And maybe J.R. Smith comes back. There's lots of ifs with Cleveland, too. Yeah, I mean, Lowry's, too. It's like, we all. it's easy to remember at the end of the season, we write these big narratives about, oh, this team did this, this style of play is going this way in the league. But it's just about injuries so much of the time. It's who can stay healthiest over those two months. Because the playoffs are such a grind. There's so many games over the course like nine months of basketball. It's hard to stay healthy that long over the course of the season. How about on the negative side? Like, which point guard, based on your metrics, like, obviously, we're all talking about great point guards, which any team would take. So we're not disparaging anybody here. But who was not as, let's say, impressive? Who's the most overrated, I guess? Yeah. Oh. Oh, don't put me in the spot right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, well, we can acknowledge that again. We're talking about great point guards. Yeah, we're talking about who is not maybe as great as their, let's say, simple metrics might suggest, and maybe more nuanced look might say they're still a great, great player, but not as great. I think. I mean, the main thing when you only really look at the numbers is you look at Isaiah Thomas in Boston, and you look at how many points he gives up on defense. And that's even with the way they usually structure the offense, the defense, where they'll, have, they'll hide him on the worst perimeter player with Bradley and Spartan next to him. But for as much as he improves their offense when he's on the floor, he takes about too much off from their defense. He's like probably of all the point guards, he's the most one-way player, which makes sense because he's only five foot nine. So I think it just kind of reinforces the old, the old truism about shorter guards. Like they just can't play defense. And it makes you wander in the playoffs – you can only really attack a guy over the course of seven games. How much that's going to have an impact on their team? So I don't. That was the guy to me was like, for as crazy as an offense, when you get to the playoffs, you can't guard anybody. There's only so far you can go. It seems like. Hmm. That's that would that would have been a name of someone. I think a lot. It's interesting. This is again. That's why we have our show here on What Moneyball. And again, we're talking to John Charks, a writer for the Ringer, and this is Eric Bradlow. And I'm here with my co-host Shane Jensen. We're here on Wharton Moneyball. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. What's interesting is you've picked a guy who's very positive. Who's mm-hmm. let's say a lot of people don't think about in Kyle Lowry, and a lot of people would say Isaiah Thomas is on the rise. And it's interesting. You're not saying he's not on the rise on some dimensions, but you're saying a more nuanced look suggests he may hurt on some dimensions as many on the dimensions he helps. Yeah, I mean, in terms of, like, pure offense, Isaiah's numbers are there with Steph, with anybody, in terms of just how great he is on offense. It's just, he's only 5'9". And also the way the NBA is going now, I expect whoever Boston plays in the playoffs, they're going to use Isaiah's man in the screen game constantly. So whoever he guards... They'll, they'll screen the ball. So if they play Cleveland, he'll either guard J.R. Smith or Kyrie. That guy will probably screen LeBron's man every single time, which is going to put Boston in a tough spot defensively every single time. Basically. Well, we saw that, as you remember, we saw that in the finals last year. Whoever Steph Curry was guarding, it's the same play every single time. Yeah, that's really the way the league is going. It's, it's becoming increasingly harder to hide guys on defense because – of the, of the screen game and the spacing on the floor. You can always find them and attack them. And, I mean, that really sort of suggests that they're, the, the the playoffs really are a different season in the sense that you have kind of, you know, you've selected for the better teams and teams are, and because you have a kind of an extended series where you can calibrate and adapt, teams, if you have a weakness on your team, it will be exploited. I mean, you know, that's, that's pretty much a guarantee, right? So it's really kind of all about... 
you know what 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 whether or not you can adjust to that weakness and you know it's it's hard to adjust somebody who's five nine yeah that's that's really the beauty of the playoffs and that's why I compare to like the other sports in basketball the better team almost always wins in the playoff series which is also kind of a downer because it makes it so less unpredictable but if you have seven games and you're really structuring a team against one other team really by the end of a series your team can be completely different than it was all season long because you have no choice in the matter because a team can attack in ways other teams can't there's more time to prepare there's more time to adjust things and that's what makes like LeBron so amazing that's why he almost never loses playoff series because LeBron's so versatile he can do so many things well that the team can change their entire identity over the course of two weeks. You look at that team two years ago, they lost Love and Kyrie, and they still got to the final with Clippers Golden State. I'm sure LeBron can do so many things well, the team's always changing. And like different, they get attacked in different ways over the course of the series. So, John, before we move on to your more recent articles, if you had to, I mean, I well, I don't mind putting you on the spot. You can choose to pass on this, but if you had to, you know, I think most people consider the top four point guards in the league maybe some combination of Steph Curry, Russell Westbrook, James Harden, and Chris Paul. Do you have any favorite amongst them? Like, if you were gonna, let's forget age for a second, because they're slightly different ages, although not massively different. Because Chris Paul's a few years older. Um, which would you pick if you could have one of them leading you um, based on the metrics you prov- uh, collected? Which would it be? Oh, um, it would depend on the team I had around me. I think. I think if I had another great player, I'd probably pick Steph because Steph's the best off ball. I know Golden State. If you have Durant, you want a guy who can play off the ball a lot. I'd probably take Steph. But if I was just kind of building a one man team. I'd probably take Harden just because he's, even though he's not a great defensive player, obviously, we all know that. He's just so big, he can switch screens, he can do a lot more things on defense than a lot of these other guys. Hmm. That's interesting. And so, well, obviously as well, you know, as you're mentioning, it's not a one-man game and people are, you know, teams build you know, players around them. So how about more recent articles that you've written? You mentioned that the article on the point guards a few weeks ago. Could you tell us what uh, you're working on recently? Uh, I've been kind of getting, I've been kind of moving towards the draft in March Madness. I kind of float between NCAA and the NBA, so I've been, I've been starting to really dig into this year's, this year's uh, top prospects, kind of look at their strengths and weaknesses, kind of predicting where they're going to go in the draft, and really digging into the film there. And I did a lot of stuff on the deadline, obviously, the trade deadline. So those are the two main, those are my two main thrusts the last few weeks. Speaking of NCAA, are you gonna, are you get Warren Buffett's uh, one million dollars this year? <laughs> I think I have better odds of winning the lottery, honestly. Yeah, yeah, pro- probably, probably. By the way, just to make sure everyone's clear about what Shane just asked John Sharks about, Warren Buffett is not even talking about. He's always offered like a billion dollars for a, bill- a perfect. Yeah. But this is a million, just I quote unquote, just for getting all the Sweet Sixteen teams right. Oh, I didn't, I didn't see that. Yeah, I so didn't. it's a million. Yeah, to, to clarify, I, I feel like in past years it's been a billion dollars for a perfect for, bracket. For a perfect bracket. Now it's just. A million dollars? No, it's a million dollars a year for life. For life, just to get for, to 16? for just to get in the Sweet Sixteen. That's, I mean, yeah, so, I would, so I your reaction get, says that that's a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely do, that's doable. I probably couldn't do it, but there's some out there who probably could. 
I don't know. I mean, let's, you know, how many, there's what, 32 games played in round one, right? 16, let's ignore the play-in games. Yeah. 16 games played in round two. So that's 48 games. Obviously, you have to go 48 for 48 to get those games, to get every... I thought it was just to get the sixteen. Yeah, you don't have to get all those games. If you, yeah. if you, if you, if for example, somebody loses in the first, uh, somebody wins that you didn't pick in the first round, oh, yeah. but loses in the second. There, there's combinations by oh, which right. you don't That's need true. to be perfect over those forty-eight. That's true. You just, it, it makes it a lot easier because a lot of yeah. times, like those really big upsets, those teams don't have staying power. So they won one game and lose a second round game. So like. At the Sweet 16, there's almost never 16, 15, 14, 13 seeds. Yeah. So it makes it a lot easier to get those 16 teams. Right? Well, actually, just to show you how it's not impossible, so our producer, Matt Johnson, just has put me something on my screen. Apparently, 14 people out of 11.57 million pulled it off on ESPN in 2014, so about 1 in 826,000. So wait a second. Warren Buffett is going to give a million dollars for life a to million- all of dollars a year for life to any employee oh. that gets his NCAA Sweet 16 right. So, I mean, the first step is being employed by Warren Buffett. Okay. Well, I mean, that's so, my good idea anyways. All right. Well, that's... Let me work for Warren Buffett. Yeah. Rich, rich right there. Yeah, but also he doesn't have 826000 I mean, I'm just saying right. he's not giving it to all of us to give no, us an opportunity. Right. That's right. It's not an open call for anybody to predict the Sweet 16. So yeah, what do you... Yeah, so what are you seeing? Uh, you said you're doing some stuff on the NCAA. You say you're doing some stuff on the draft. What, you know, whichever you prefer to talk about first. Let's start with the drafts, since I'm sitting here in Philadelphia, and we, you know, we've got a lottery pick coming our way, possibly two lottery picks coming our way if the Lakers uh, don't end up in the top three. Um, what are you seeing for the uh, draft coming up? Well, I mean, it, I guess it works on what we just talked about. Um, it's a very point guard-heavy draft. There's probably going to be six to seven point guards taking in the lottery. Not a lot of big men, but it's a very perimeter-heavy draft. And so it'll be interesting to see which teams need point guards and how that how it shakes out. I think everyone everyone pretty much agrees the top two players are both point guards. Markel Fultz of Washington and Lonzo Ball of UCLA. So I think for Philadelphia, it works out pretty well because they need a point guard. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, their strategy of picking up nothing but big men for the last few years has paid, you know, I'm not sure it was prescient, you know, but, you know, they they, they are set up well for this draft. Is your assessment, yeah. John, is your assessment that, I, it's interesting that you say that, so I would have said that the Sixers need a shooting guard. I'm just interested in your perception on this. I mean, we do have Ben Simmons, you know, again, let's assume he's coming back from injury next year. He's the, was the number one pick in the draft. I think most people see him as our point guard of the future, or at least a guy that's going to have the ball in his hands every minute, and that we need a shooting guard. Do you think, but your assessment is the Sixers need a point guard? Well, I guess these days it's hard, it's kind of hard to differentiate that a little bit. I think they need like a primary score next to Simmons. And most primary scores these days are quote unquote point guards. So someone like Malik Monk of Kentucky, he's not a traditional point guard. I think he gets like two or three assists a game, but he'd be playing point guard in the NBA. And so I think he'd be the person to Simmons, he's an elite scorer who doesn't really need to be a primary ball handler. At Kentucky right now he plays off the ball next to De'Aaron Fox. But he can make a really transition from playing shooting guard in college to point guard in the NBA. Yeah, that was a guy I've seen in a number of mock drafts. I actually, for that reason, I happened to watch a bunch of Kentucky's game last night, and uh, I, I would be happy if Malik Monk was on the Sixers. Let me put it that way. 
Yeah, I didn't see the game, but apparently it was really close. They came back from Vanderbilt of all teams. It was the it was actually the greatest Kentucky comeback since 1994. They were down 19 points in the game, and I guess it was. I think it was the greatest comeback in Calipari's career, which I found surprising. Like he had, well, maybe he never goes down by 19 points. I was going to say, yeah, his teams are always so good. Probably hasn't happened very often. So what other things are you working on? Uh, any other articles that we should tell our fans? So this is, again, we're talking to Jonathan Charks, writer for The Ringer. Anything we should tell our fans that's upcoming that you're working on? Um, yeah, we'll just be doing a lot more. We're doing, we're doing like, weekly big boards with, uh, with the NBA draft, the top 10, 15 players, or I guess every other week. It'll be a lot more college, college basketball, close to March Madness. And I probably got to work on some Kevin Durant thing after I got this phone with you guys just in case he is out for a while. Mm-hmm. Well, Jonathan, first of all, thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. Um, we, I, I must say, when we, when we were sent your point guard article and we all read it, we found it to be fascinating that you were looking at so many different dimensions of point guards. It was good to see people moving beyond just scoring or plus minus or kind of other simple metrics. Um, and we're excited that you're, you know, ex- as you said, you're expanding out to the NCAA and you're going to be working on the draft and everything. And uh, we're excited to see more of your stuff coming forward. Yeah, cool. Thanks for having me on, guys. Great. It was nice talking to you. So we've been talking to Jonathan Charks, uh, writer for The Ringer. Um, I don't know, uh, Shane, what's your kind of major takeaway about the point guards? I mean, how do you, you know, when you are watching NBA games, I mean, he made a comment that in some sense, he made the analogy to football, which is it's becoming a shoot first, pass second league. Is that the kind of, I don't know that I know the answer to this. Is that the kind of point guard you're looking for? uh, Yeah, and I mean, I I found that particular, like, set of comments intriguing because, you know, I'm I'm a huge fan, you know, I, I... I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a bigger fan of football than I am basketball, and I watch football with a lot of casual football fans typically, and they're always, they're always asking me, why does, why does the team just run up the middle? That never works. You, at most, you get a couple yards. I'm like, well, you have to understand that if you don't do that, you're not going to have the kind of freedom to do the passing that actually gets you the big yards. And so to kind of hear that same analogy applied to basketball where, you know, if, if you don't have a good shooting point guard, you know, it's not, you're not going to be able to keep the opposing team honest and he's going to have less passing opportunities, therefore. I think that's a really fascinating kind of insight. And to hear that the kind of league has maybe evolved in the sense that, like, now it's kind of shoot first to set up the pass as opposed to pass first to set up the shot, I think that's a really kind of cool evolution. Yeah, you know, I've thought about that particular issue a lot because well, I mean, one is just the physics of it which means if you're a point guard and the other team doesn't respect your shot and the other point guard can sag down into the lane first of all you can't drive mm-hmm. we know drive and dish is really the nba today you drive you dish to an open shooter that's you don't just throw the ball to the perimeter and get threes you drive to the center throw it out that's where a lot of the threes yep. come from that's why steph curry's so great he can penetrate the middle and dish it out if the if there's no respect for his shot you're not just blowing past somebody that's number 1 second also is the passing lanes get worse because again if the guy is able to sag off there it's not as easy to just pass the ball around so it's interesting to me that he comes up with this perspective that if you can't shoot as a point guard it's actually going to affect your passing as a point guard yeah that's right. No, and I and I think it is. I, I like the football analogy a lot because it's something that I I confront in football all the time, trying to explain to fans. Well, what'll also be interesting to see is it'll be interesting to see how the you know the NCA draft goes because a lot of people are again are saying you know similar to by the way. It's interesting. Maybe the maybe as I get older, I'm getting more and more paying more and more attention to hyperbole. But 
this is the best running back draft in the last 20 years. Well, a lot of people are saying this is the best point guard draft maybe that we've ever seen in the NBA. It'll be interesting if we evaluate after the fact, you know, how great a draft mm-hmm. is this? Like, how you know, can we assess that? Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a tough question because it's going to be so... So tied into, like, it's so hard to retrospectively evaluate draft class. I mean, you can evaluate specific people um, to evaluate draft classes because of the combination of which teams they go to and stuff like that. It's, it, it, it's I mean, it's doable, but, I, you know, it, it's not an easy question to and, answer. And the one the one thing I can say about the draft is, um, I remember, I think I've talked about this before at Morton Moneyball, something that set the Sixers back for a number of years is, you may remember, they were... a Above 500 team with Andre Guadalla. They were making the playoffs, but decided this is before we trusted the process. And they made a trade for which they ended up with the number two pick in the draft. Let's be clear. They were an above 500 team who got the number two pick in the draft. And it was the year where they picked Evan Turner, and it's historically thought of as the worst draft in the history of the NBA. Like, no really good players ever came out of that draft. And so a lot of it is you may get a—and this is related to what John Sharks was talking about. This is a great year for the Sixers to need a guard. I mean, and, you know, we've talked about this. A lot of times in the NFL, you know, if you need a quarterback— I mean, we'll talk about this after the break, but you need a quarterback. But is this the year to need a quarterback in the NFL? Yeah. It's no, not I, that obvious. And I mean, that's that. That was the whole thing about the process that ended up. I mean, it's still well designed, but it ended up being kind of intolerable for fans and and, and ownership. Is that you really got to just trust that you live by the coin flips, you die by the coin flips. Yep, that's the well. It's a perfect, uh, perfect comment here for Wharton Moneyball. So this is the first three quarters of our show, uh, where we've been lucky. We've had two great guests: one, Andrew Manis, the technical director at Pitt Row, with uh, Jonathan Charks from The Ringer. Uh, the last half hour, Shane and I are going to probably move on to baseball and a bunch of other sports. Uh, so this has been the first three quarters. Please join us right after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball for the last half hour of our show. We're here live every Wednesday morning from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern and replayed throughout the week. Thanks to our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. He knows I'm a big fan of 70s music, and that's, I don't remember exactly the song, but that's definitely from the 70s. So thanks to Dion Simpkins for that music uh, bringing us back here from the break. So I'm Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. We've had two great guests, and last half hour we're going to talk about again what caught our eye in sports. So... Shane, one of the things that caught my eye was I was starting to think about some recent events in sports, and I was starting to think about how people's perception of certain coaches or individuals might be better or not than their actual performance. So let me ask you a quick question. Um, How many rings does John Calipari have, the coach of Kentucky? How many national championships has he won? Three. Three, right. The answer is one. And so there's so no, I'm just saying I think most people have this perception. And I'm not saying national championships is everything because he's brought Memphis to the final four. He's brought Kentucky a number of times. Kentucky was undefeated until they lost to Wisconsin. But John Calipari is thought of as and I'm not saying he's not a great, great, great coach. But somehow in our minds, we've got he's got this massive number of national titles. Yeah. And. He's got one. 
He's got one national title. Okay, so in that in that same vein, and by the way, if any of you have questions for Shane or me, I'm, I'm not, not trying to stump Shane. I'm actually just trying to bring up that sometimes perception's not reality. If you have a question, please call in here to Wharton Moneyball, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Um, our producer, Matt Johnson, will put you through, and, you know, uh, maybe you could stump Shane and me. Maybe I don't know. Make me look bad in some other sport. That's exactly. what we're asking you guys to well, do. Well, the next one is yeah. going to be a sport that you do know a lot about Uh so who has more rings as a head coach bill belichick or greg popovich Mm. um it's gotta be belichick right right no they have no no so this is when i sort of fooled you i mean they're the same Okay. They both have five rings. I thought he only had four in San Antonio, but all no, right. No, he's got five. Okay. And so what you're pointing out... Trick it, questions. That's yeah, kind of no, rude, but, but I, right. No, I'm, I'm just fine. pointing out that... Yeah. Look, I'm not... Look, it's when you're when you got so many rings, it's hard to keep track of no, them no, all. No, I mean, that's actually a great comparison because I do sort of see those two... I mean, obviously... Well, it's over roughly the... It's yeah. interesting about... The, I didn't randomly pick these two th- people. It's roughly been over the same number of years. Yeah. It's roughly been. I mean, I would say Popovich has had less over. No, I mean Brady's been really the only consistent player. You could argue Tim Duncan was around for most of those. There was yeah. one of them they won without Tim Duncan. Right. Was with uh, David Robinson before Tim Duncan got there. But it's been about. You know, they've yeah. both been the best in their business for twenty years, and most people would say they're so far and above everybody else you know and I, I think that's right i mean if you had to kind of talk about a franchise that in basketball that is sort of the closest to what the patriots have managed to accomplish in football it would have to be san antonio i mean they just don't have down seasons i mean again these days they're like you know they're not who we're predicting for the finals but we're they're still at that level where they could sneak into the finals and this is after 20 years of being that team yeah, and when you say sneak into the finals, they could sneak into the finals after a 67-win season, yeah, which, you uh-huh. know, still might make them right. one of the top 10. As we've talked about regular NBA season at the start of the show today. They may end up with one of the top 10 regular seasons all time. And if they were to make it to the finals, people would say, what a massive upset. Yeah. I don't know that it would be that massive an upset. No, no, again, they. I mean, and, and obviously that it, it's... The key to that kind of sustained uh, um, uh, sort of success. I mean, obviously, Belichick and Popovich both deserve a lot of credit for what the, their their teams have done. But you clearly need to have them nested within just an amazing organization, like the ability for San Antonio Spurs to essentially still feel. You know, Tim Duncan like was obviously a huge part of their sustained uh, success, but they've been able to essentially reinvent their team in his absence. And then, of course, the last one I was going to ask you, which I'm sure you do know the answer to, was how many championships did the Braves win over that 15-year period where they won the division every single year? Uno. Yeah, it's one. And so, uh, and actually, that was one of those things where I was also— See, it's the only Atlanta championship in maybe their history, actually, across the city. Hmm. What was also interesting about that, what's interesting about that one as well, is that— I think this is one of the times you would even say that they underperformed the yeah. coin flips. Like, we always talk about That's it being right. a coin flips. Well, if they had flipped 13 coins with only, you know, four teams left in the playoffs, because they always won the division, so yeah. they weren't, even when the wild card was introduced, they should have won more than one championship. So they, they underproduced the coins. That's right. That's right. I mean, you know, again, they, 
that that was a time when you know they they unfortunately kind of overlapped a, a significant stretch of that was the Yankees dynasty. Uh, but even beyond that, they got unlucky. And by the way, thanks to our uh, sound engineer and associate producer Dion Simpkins for pointing out to me correctly that Tim Duncan was there for all five of the championships. Not to uh, you know. By the way, I'm just saying it puts him in a very elite class because it's the same number of rings as Kobe Bryant, mm-hmm. who by the way essentially played in the same era as Tim Duncan, and by the way, in the same conference as Tim Duncan. So, you know, they both had five rings over the same amount of time period. And so, you know, five rings, I'm just saying, it puts you in a very elite class of players with five rings. It's only one less than Michael Jordan, right? Yeah, that's amazing. So that's a very, very large. It's only it's and only same like number six as Magic less than jo- Bill Russell. <laughs> yeah, no, but it puts him in the same class as Magic Johnson. Mm-hmm. It puts him one less than Kareem because Kareem won yeah. one with the Bucks before he was with the Lakers. So he's got six rings. I'm just saying, when you get to that era yeah. of five or six rings, it's one more than Derek Jeter, right? Yeah, that's right. It's, right. it's it's one more than uh, it's one more than Jeter there. So once now that we've made the transition to baseball, and you know, Adi was so happy and excited last week when there was the pitchers and catchers report. You know, that's his big news of the season. I thought I would go ahead and look at the MLB projections for 2017, and I thought it would be interesting for you and I to go through them, but also the from a statistical point of view, compare them in terms of predictions of mean reversion. In other words. Are there teams that the odds makers think outperformed last season and yeah. will revert back, or ones who are they're predicting will do even better than last season? And and I'll yes, and I mean I'll I'll, I'll kind of point out that you would the sort of general framework for that as a statistician is that you'd kind of any team that did exceptionally well last year you almost have to mean revert, right? Because you sort of any team that did exceptionally well last season you you believe in part it's because they were very good but in part the luck kind of went their way and that's and so mean reversion at kind of the tails of the distribution is almost guaranteed that like you know the top teams we don't expect you know Chicago for example to win 103 games again next year even though we might have them as the best team in baseball still um and at the other end we don't expect the twins to hopefully lose 59 games again this year we we would expect or to win, some to win uh, so, sorry to, to win 59 games this year um we would expect them to improve as a matter of fact why don't we just because where else could they go well actually what's what's great about what shane has done is he's queued this up perfectly why don't we start right at the extremes so you know I, there's six divisions we could have started anywhere but why don't we start not that we're an nl central town here in philadelphia we're an nl east town but let's start right with the nl central yeah you've pointed out that the Cubs won 103 games last year, which, by the way, what's interesting about that is you remember they were at a much higher pace. Yeah. They were going to win, you know, like the like the Tigers in 84. They were going to win 116 or like Seattle in 90. They were going to 95. They were going to win 120. Yeah. So 103 was actually, they tailed off a fair amount at the yeah. end. How? But No fans are really bummed about that, given how their season turned out. But it, yes. No, it, they did. They did kind of... Uh, uh, Maybe they start resting their players a little bit. <laughs> uh, exactly. But could you help our fans here on Morton Moneyball think about, so you've talked about regressing backwards. 103 is still a very big number. Yeah. How do you even think about how far back? And by the way, just to let you know, the projections that Shane and I will be talking about are from USA Today Sports. Um, they have Chicago at 99 wins. But how do you even think about, you're at 103, obviously the average team wins 81. Yeah. By definition, every, on average, everybody's at 500, 81 and 81. How do you think about how far back 
to regress someone's performance to the next year? Well, I mean, part of it is, again, you'd like to try and remove as much as possible that sort of like luck component in that 103 games. And there you can kind of look at the historical record of all teams that have won a similar amount of games and what they did the next season. There you're kind of averaging over team ability and and what 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 you're kind of missing by doing just that calculation alone is every team that kind of regressed from 103 wins down did so in part because the luck component wasn't with them the next season but also because of personnel changes so then you have to also kind of look at personnel and sort of say like you know how much of this team has turned over who have they lost who have they gained and and you know, I guess the USA Today, when they've done that, somehow gets it in their, as they quote it, semi-scientific <laughs> method, um, get them to 99. Well, let me ask you a question. Which would you, I don't want to say trust more, but if I said to you, all right, Shane, you have a month to do the following two analyses for the Cubs. Yeah. You can either just get a big database together. Look at all teams that have won over 100 games. And I just arbitrarily picked over 100. Yeah. Maybe it's 98, whatever it is. Looked at their performance in year T. Saw how many less wins. And we both agree it's likely to be less yeah. in year T plus one. And use that as your adjuster. Or you could build a statistical model that would allow you to predict performance based on whatever other set of variables. Which would you use and which would you trust? Well, I mean, if I'm a team, obviously the more valuable one is the extent that there are my personnel actually predicts my win total right. into so the I'm next season. I'm asking you how much variation, back to your yeah. comment when you asked Andrew Manis this question. Oh, oh, if you're asking much... me what proportion of variation yes. is due to sort of like like of that aggression due to luck versus personnel changes, it's mostly luck. It, it, it's mostly, the most. I think most of that regression or, or most of the sort of like, you know, um, change in good teams from from previous year to next year is going to be just removing that luck component. It's mean reversion. That's right. That's right. And I'll say this. The luck component does kind of, you know, it's not just sort of the luck of individual games going your way at the end. It's also the luck component of injury avoidance and all that stuff. I mean, Chicago last year, they were a very well-assembled team, but they also stayed a well-assembled team because they had a minimum number of injuries. I mean, they did lose Kyle Schreiber for a large part of the season, but other than that, they, they stayed healthy as well. And that's as much a key to success as the personnel you assemble. Let me bring up another statistical point related to still the NL Central, but you know, people in out the world at the NL Central don't talk about it as much, but we as statisticians should. So last year, the Cubs won the division by 17 games. Yep. They had 103 wins, the Cardinals had 86. Notice what's also reverted is the amount of games they win by. Yeah. Now they won by 17. The prediction for by USA Today is that the Cubs will win by 11 games. Now, it's Which still, is by still the way, pretty healthy. It, yeah, it's still a very <laughs> healthy... There's a lot of room for error in and there. And by the way, matter of fact, we would both say that they must have the Cubs at well over 95% to win the division. Because mm-hmm. even if you were to, you know simulate Cubs games and simulate Cardinals games, to overcome an 11-game in expectation is going to happen very, very yeah. rarely, unless major injuries happen. I mean, based on those predictions, we would call the NL Central not particularly competitive this year. Right? Matter of fact, you would say it's extremely 
non-competitive. Yeah. I mean, St. Louis, uh, you know, I mean, St. Louis will still, because of the wild star card, St. Louis still has a reason to compete. But at least if, if you buy into these predictions, we've already essentially given the division to the Cubs. But were you at, is it all, I mean, maybe you could just talk to our listeners here who, you know, do analyses. A lot of our listeners do their own home analyses. Why it makes sense not only to revert back the Cubs, but also their differential over the rest of the division. Well, again, because that differential is a part, partly because they have a, a, assembled a team that is 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 in you know in expectation just better than the Cardinals or whoever their nearest competitors in the NL Central. But that differential is also driven by luck. Right, and it's not just a, there's there's an extra. Now there's compo- two sources of luck. The, there's two sources of luck. There's the sort of bad luck, I guess, of the Cardinals not playing as well as the Cubs. The 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 good luck that the Cubs, you know, maintained themselves relatively injury free and played well. There's also this extra dynamic when you're talking about differential is that you know if the Cardinals, you know, I, I can't remember how far the Cardinals were behind the Cubs going into say the trade deadline. But it, it, they must have been like at oh, least way, way back last year because the Cubs 10, were 15 games behind the Cubs. And so at that point, you start lo- lowering the probability of, of, of the Cardinals coming back because the Cardinals might decide, hey, we're, you know, we're, we're out of contention for the division. We're not going to make that big trade to try and acquire somebody at the trade deadline. So let me ask you a bunch of probability questions, and I want to ask your thoughts on this. So when I look at the six divisions, um, if you look at the NL Central, let me just stay on for one more second. The USA Today has the Cubs at 99 predicted wins, St. Louis 88, Pittsburgh 81, Milwaukee 72, and Cincinnati 66. What's interesting to me about that is all of them are massively spaced from each other. It's 11, then 7, then 9, then 6. In other words, they're saying it's pretty much deterministic the entire rank ordering of the NL Central. Yeah, it seems like what the NL Central. What I have to. No, no, I yeah. was going to ask you. How likely is it, do you think, that that's the actual ordering? If I said to you, you take that ordering, I'll take every other ordering, and we'll make an even money bet, would you take that bet? No. Oh, you 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 get that ordering. I get every other. No, one? No, I get the every other. No, one. I would not. I yeah. No, it, it, there's more. There's, you know, I I think that there is a good. There's a very good chance. For example, you know, Milwaukee. You know, again, one or two key injuries, and all of a sudden, maybe St. Louis slips down. Pittsburgh could easily eclipse St. Louis. Milwaukee could easily eclipse Pittsburgh. Milwaukee could. You know, with a couple key injuries, fall below Cincinnati. There's a lot of different ways those rankings could change. But I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. Just the degree of spacings give almost a a much higher degree of certainty to that division than we both agree. That's there is. right. And I mean, like just just for our listeners who aren't looking out, pouring over these rankings like we are right now. I mean, most of the divisions in baseball are not predicted this way. The NL Central somehow the USA Today is pretty confident about who is the best team. And who is the worst team, and actually all the intermediary teams as well. You take something like the AL East, everybody's favorite division, there's a lot more uncertainty there. The teams are not are, are not nearly as spaced out. Although it does have Boston with a predicted seven-game win over Toronto in that division. Yeah, which I is... think that's an overestimate, but yes, yeah. What's also interesting, all right, so let me ask you a different question. Now let's look cross divisions. So USA Today has Boston predicted at 94, mm-hmm. Cleveland 95, Houston 90, Washington, 90. Chicago, as we mentioned, 99. And Los Angeles, 92. And those are all the sort of predicted division winners right there. Correct. Those are all the predicted division winners. What If if I had to say to you, so where they have obviously Chicago as the highest. Yeah. So let's do the same bet, but a different one. Same but different. 
I'll give you Chicago. I'll take the other five teams. What odds would I have to give you that Chicago would end up with the best record in baseball? I get the other five. Oh, I get the matter of fact, yeah. I, matter of fact, I will, I'll, I'll make it easier for you. I'll make it even more fair. I won't even take the top five division winners because it doesn't have to be Boston, Cleveland. Yeah, yeah. I'll even just take Boston, Cleveland, straight Houston. Up, what are the straight up odds that Chicago has the best record in baseball at the end of the season? No, That's really what you're I'm taking at. a different one. Oh, because I'm a, you're allow you're you're being generous to me. You're allowing me to take all other teams. I'm even willing just to take the five other teams that they've predicted are going to win their division. I'll take the five predict. I, I'm going to ignore yeah. the other 25 yeah. teams in baseball. You get Chicago. I get the other five predicted winners, which. By the way, for our listeners out there, I'm being generous to Shane because I could say I'll take the other five actual division winners and then my bet is better for me, but I'm just taking the five predicted winners. Would you do an even money bet on that? Would you take Chicago and I'll take those other five teams? No. No, So even that you wouldn't take? Uh, Not not straight up. Not even odds. No. I I mean, I think it's... I think there's a lot. I think that you add up the probability of Cleveland having a better potential, having a better record than Chicago, Los Angeles Dodgers, you know, Washington. These are all so. I'll ask you the same question, and you know, I, I'm gonna. I've always been an effect size guy. Any What's one of those driving, could beat Chicago. But and, and the, my question to you here is why? Why do you think that? I mean, there's inherent randomness. By yeah. the way, we both believe that. So just by inherent randomness, even if these true abilities are correct. Inherent randomness could get 95 for Cleveland over 99 yeah. for Chicago in a heartbeat. One goes up two, the other goes down two, bam, yeah. we're at 97 each and, you know, yeah. no win. What do you think is the major source of variability in baseball outcomes? Like, What's making you saying, no way would I take that 50 Injuries to bet. key players. Injuries. Okay. Injuries to key players. Another source of variability we're not really talking, when we talk about division totals as well, is the competitiveness of the division. I mean, I think Washington... They've got Washington at 90 wins. Uh, Washington is, I think, has a chance of, if I had to guess, uh, err on one side or the other, I think Washington maybe goes above that just because they get to, you know, they get to play Atlanta, Philadelphia, and Miami 19 times each, I think. It's something like that. Uh, and th- those are predictably not good teams, right? So, so I mean, where, whereas we sort of point out the NL Central Chicago is a class above those other teams, but... You know, St. Louis and Pittsburgh are no slouches. Which division? I mean, we always say the AL East, but, you know, even just based on these win totals, there's another interesting metric. This is a wonderful thing about doing Wharton Moneyball. We get to talk about interesting metrics. Let's talk about max minus min for each of the six divisions. So in the AL East, these are just different ways to talk about competitive metrics. Mm -hmm. So Boston minus Tampa Bay is 19. Cleveland minus Minnesota is 29. Houston minus Oakland is 20. Washington minus Philadelphia is surprisingly maybe only 20. Chicago minus Cincinnati, 33. And Los Angeles minus San Diego, 27. So roughly, you know, they're saying the AL East is the most competitive, but we've got the AL West out there, the NL East. Do you think the NL East is, that seems to me to be much lower variation than I would have predicted. Like the NL East is almost as competitive, if you like, in some measure, max minus min, as the AL East. Yeah, I mean, I just think, I I don't, I mean... I think doing max minus min is is not the best measure of competitiveness. I mean, just because you know it's it's it. What we really are going to be looking at as far as competition come July, August, September is not how much farther ahead Washington is from Atlanta or whoever the bottom is. It's really going to be like how close things are 
and in, in say the top three teams in the division. I do think the AL East will be very competitive because there will probably not be a lot of separation in those top three teams. And you know, you we could guess at even which rank ordering those top three teams would be. I think that's very kind of, you know not not obvious to me. NL East, the same you know Washington, New York. I think are both really great teams. And so we're imputing a lot of competition in that division. It drops off more from there, right? So I would say the AL East is more competitive than the NL East just because you do have three or four teams in play, I think, for at least wild card slash division title spots. Realistically, in the NL East, you've really only got Washington and New York. Yeah, so you're you're basically, which is a great point. Yeah. You're saying max minus min is a bad metric of competition. Not, I, I would say sort of number count the number of teams in the division that, that will still win. be in contention, Tension. like late in the year, predictably. Hmm. Uh, anything else you're looking for up up until the baseball season? You know, uh, did you follow it all? You know, Tim Tebow, anything you read about? <laughs> I mean, he looked impressive yeah, in batting no, practice when guys are throwing seventy mile an hour pitches to right where you want them. Yeah, yeah, no, and I mean, I, I mean, obviously, I'm, I, it, it is fascinating. I mean, to a certain extent, just kind of out of the novelty of it, I hope he does well. I hope, I hope we see him, uh, you know, on the baseball diamond in the future. I mean, that would be kind of a cool story, even though you know the the. The narratives are a little bit overwhelming with Tebow, Tebow at time. I still would love for that to happen. I mean, otherwise, I'm just kind of looking again at sort of, you know, whether teams like whether there are going to be any kind of key injuries coming out of spring training and stuff like that. That's the thing. I That's the only thing about spring training I think is actually predictable into the regular season is injuries. Um, that, that obviously does have effect on your actual team. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm fascinated. You know, I mean, I'm already seeing ridiculous articles about, oh, is Gary, Gary Sanchez the best catcher in baseball? It's as I mean, long as I mean, there's that, a question mark. It, 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 there, there, there's there. I mean, certainly we can agree there's a question mark there. Yeah, that's right. Well, this has been two hours of uh, Wharton Moneyball this morning. We're on again every Wednesday morning, eight to ten a.m. Eastern, live and replayed throughout the week. This has been Eric Bradlow. I've been lucky to spend the last two hours with my friend and co-host Shane Jensen. We've talked about the NFL. Bunch of interesting uh, players released and cut, and players will be re-signed. We uh, talk a lot about the NBA and the potential impact of Kevin Durant. We had uh, two great guests, both talking about pit row, about uh, auto racing, and their new scheme of counting points, which is interesting. We talked about a lot about baseball and kind of mean reversion. So all great topics to talk about. Uh, so uh, enjoy your sports over the next uh, week or so. Uh, enjoy your analytics. And we'll be back next week here on Wharton Moneyball.